Welcome to the UW Political Economy Forum podcast. This is episode seven. My name is Nicholas Bitchdock, and I'm a fellow at the Political Economy Forum. Here with me today is Professor Mark Minaldo. He's the department head of liberal studies at Texas A&M University Commerce. Hello, Mark. Hello. Nice to be here. Thank you. We are also joined by Professor Victor Minaldo, who is professor of political science at the University of Washington and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum. Hello, Victor. Hi, Nick. Good to be here again. Thanks. So, Mark, you are not only the brother of Victor, but you're also a academic philosopher. So my first question to you has to be, what is the relevance of academic philosophy for politics today? Thank you um, for the question. And that's a very big question. So I think let's unpack it. And first, let me just qualify that my training is in political philosophy. And I would therefore uh, begin with this, you know, philosophy, there's multiple branches of it, political philosophy being one of them, and political philosophy treats politics directly. But if we ask what is the relevance for philosophy in politics, we're asking, I think, a much larger question. We're not asking what is it in terms of a branch of philosophy, but what is the influence of philosophy on politics? So it's probably necessary to just give a sort of skeleton um, view of the two main branches of philosophy that matter for the way we speak of philosophy, at least in modern philosophy, and that's metaphysics and epistemology. So if we go on, if we were to define metaphysics, again, provisionally, we might just say that metaphysics is the study of ultimate reality, right? Um, it's the, the question of what are things really, what are they really in themselves? What is the thing of, in itself? or to use very sort of German terminology, what is the thinghood of a thing, right? This is what makes people really you know, frown and, and barrel their eyebrows when, uh, when, they, when they hear such things. Another way of understanding uh, metaphysics is in two regards. One is what is the ultimate cause of things? What makes, what makes things responsible for being the way they are, which is independent of the way I experience them? And what are beings as such? Uh, epistemology, we could just summarize or identify in a very simple way, which is the theory of knowledge. How is it that I know as the knowing being? How is it that I, I experience the world and how is it that I have any understanding whatsoever? In the way that epistemology and metaphys- metaphysics are related, I would say that, again, and this is in the advent of modern philosophies, they're both related in the sense that there's a subject, a known subject that thinks and experiences the world and the objective world, the world outside of the subject. And the reason that metaphysics matters and philosophy matters today, I would say, is that Kantian philosophy created a a big problem for philosophy. There's anything you remember from the critique of pure reason, which is Kant's, Kant's big works, is that the experience of the subject, their experience of the world is phenomenal. And that the world, the objective world is noumenal. So that there's no real experience of the outside world. Everything is subject. So after Kant, there was a say there was a reaction against Kant. And the most important reaction you could see in the 20th century in the philosophy of Martin Heidegger, where Martin Heidegger's sort of job, he thinks it, he thinks of it as his job to sort of disintegrate and destroy the metaphysics, the academic and the philosophical discourse of metaphysics by obliterating, for lack of a better word, subjecthood or subjectivity. What he basically says is that subjectivity is a bunch of malarkey. It doesn't make sense. Uh, There is no experience of subjectivity that you can point to in the world. 
So what Heidegger does and basically changes the course of philosophy in the 20th century is he begins, his, his approach to philosophy is phenomenology or existentialism, what we've learned. And he says that the starting point for all experience is what he calls being in the world. So he doesn't use subject, he doesn't use human being, he doesn't use any of the, the sort of Cartesian baggage that we're used to understanding philosophy. If you read meditations on philosophy, Descartes has this very famous example that thinks everything away. What is he left with? He's left with cogito ergo sum. I think of therefore I am. And that's the basic starting point of epistemology. So Heidegger says there's no experience in the world that is cogito ergo sum. There is no thinking subject. There's just the fact that we're here, right? And he calls human beings Dasein, or literally being there or being here. So what he does is observe how being there or being in the world is the seat of experience. And the thing about being in the world is that experience makes sense or the world, I'm sorry, the thing that we might call the objectifiable world makes sense to us all the time in what he calls a pre-given understanding, right? So there's no split between the subject and the object. The human being is simply in the world in all moments already understands the world and the sort of guiding and intelligibility of the world moves one forward and allows one to simply experience the, experience the world as such. So I'll, I'll put, that is my very oversimplistic description of the history of philosophy. Why does this matter for politics? One would say, well, it doesn't seem to matter at all. But one thing that Heidegger does that is very controversial is that he doesn't let it, he doesn't let it rest at human intelligibility is this dissolution of the subject object. He then thinks that the problem of philosophy is that it has kind of, it doesn't have the thrust and ammunition required to understand experience. It doesn't give to understanding the necessary tools. So what he does is he basically constructs this very unique, oddly, uh, he invents words and terms and he he looks for an origin that is pre-philosophical and pre-theoretical that doesn't exist historically. So Heidegger starts doing some weird stuff, right? And this, it's not very far into his career. He's doing this in introduction to metaphysics. He's looking for a sort of primal moment before where language and human existence come into being. So he's looking for the origin of being. So he's, in some sense, he's, he thinks he's the, you might as well call him the first metaphysician. But in doing so, he, he does something that is consequential for us in the 20th century, which is everything that we hold near and dear, let's call it our forms of government, human freedom, uh, our notions of liberalism, all these concepts or these values that are important to us, he sort of diminishes them in value, looking for a political, historical moment that lies beyond anything that we recognize in our, in our human history. I guess I have a couple of questions for Mark. One is, it seems that for Heidegger, after reading your piece, uh, which we'll post, by the way, to the website as a compendium to this conversation, that the idea of nothing is very important for Heidegger. And that the idea of nothing isn't the idea of nothing versus something you get in deductive logic, going back to Aristotle or going back to just humans and their ability to reason. And the other thing that I got from your piece is the idea of authenticity and that there's actually, although you say Heidegger has no judgment, he doesn't valorize authenticity more than inauthenticity. 
you can't help but read into his philosophy this idea that authenticity is different, if not better. And that goes maybe to what you said about politics, why this matters for politics. The third thing I'd like to ask you is this idea of moods and anxiety and how anxiety and dread about our existence or, or just the awe of being alive can be that road towards authenticity. If you could just unpack that and then if you could find a way to connect it to politics or political projects, I'd be grateful. Well, that would make me a genius, which I'm not. So let's see what I can do. <laughs> okay, so basically, each component there is is a tough nut to crack. Uh, I'm I'm not going to say much about the nothing, right? So much as I will say that, yeah, it's not about the principle of contradiction so much as the nothing is a certain strangeness for Heidegger or an uncanniness. What he calls the nothing has, a, I'll call it a positive is in fact has a positive content, right? It's not, it's not um, some empty concept. At least in being in time, nothing is the, what he calls the primordial ground of existence. You know, before you've interpreted yourself and the world in any single way, you are irreducibly just happen to be here. What's the cause? Uh, there's where Heidegger is different than metaphysics conventionally understood. Why are you here? And the answer is no reason. You're here for no reason. You just happen to be here. He calls it thrownness. You're just thrown into the world and you just happen to be in this position at this place at this given time. And so that your, your, the ground of your existence is nothing, right? So I'll, I'm going to leave that there for now. We can go come back to it if you want. What does this have to do with authenticity? It has everything to do with authenticity because unless you're in touch with this notion of your groundlessness of existence, you can't have an authentic existence. Authentic existence is understood by the fact that for the most part in one's life, you are moving through inauthentic, inauthentic interpretation of your existence. And that's very simply, you can understand that as I'm Mark Minaldo, I'm 41 year, years old, I'm a professor, a husband, father, uh, ex-football player, uh, Latino, uh, half-American, uh, a devotee of continental philosophy, which I'm not, but let's just say, or classical philosophy, which I'm more like than, right? I have all these potential layers upon layers of roles and hats that I wear at any given moment, again, because I just happen to be thrown into them. None of them were really of my choosing, that I never stop and have the proper attitude an interpretation of where what I really stand on and what do I really stand on I stand on the fact that I'm thrown into this world that is not of my making and not of my choosing and the only determination that is really mine is the fact that I individuated by the fact that I'm going to die right that's what being in time most of the attention being in time gets is that Heidegger has this philosophy of death that being said how do you get there? Like, how do I have this sort of moment of, of truly understanding who I am? Heidegger says, well, you tap into these moods. You know, these are not intellectual. You, there's, no, there's no scientific method of discovering authenticity. There's no ethic of discovering authenticity. It just happens to be that there are, there are moments in one's existence. Now, I wouldn't even say moments. That, in fact, your common mode of being in the world, you're sort of just it's like going on a walk. In when you guys are in Seattle and it's misty rain outside, <laughs> probably all year long, right? Your experience of going out and, and having that walk in that misty rain, it 
what are you doing when you're doing that? Are you thinking? Are you measuring space? Are you uh, are you identifying bird chirps? Are you right? Are you are you creating an intelligible list of your experience, or you just happen to be in a place and and sort of kind of just lose yourself in this experience? So Heidegger has all these ways to describe these experiences and moods: angst being one of them, boredom, complete joy, uh, things of that nature. And it seems that in these moments you tap into what he calls this primordial understanding of your existence. That being said, what, what does authenticity do for you? Well, you just have a better understanding of your ex existential structure on the one hand, but yes, later in his other words, especially introduction to metaphysics, he seems to see, say that this can be interpreted in a collective way, right? In a community. What's really interesting in the introduction of metaphysics, he says, this is how a people is created, right? This is how the birth of a people is created. Uh, it's created in these interesting, unique, primordial moments of reckoning that only can be created by these sort of, I'll call them geniuses for lack of a better word, priests, thinkers, poets, right? He puts them all in the same category. He says they create a people, right? They have this sort of reckoning between language, being, and creation. So there's, this is what I meant about this pre-historical moment pre and pre-theoretical moment, pre-philosophical moment. So this is why Heidegger's strange to most analytical philosophy. He's like, what the hell is he talking about? He's just making things up potentially. But he thinks he sees this, he cultivates this in sort of pre-Socratic philosophy. It seems to me that an important basic idea of Heidegger seems to be that there are less authentic ways of being. That you as a person, you can be in a state that is somehow, um, yeah, he calls it less authentic. Uh, you're more caught up in the fact that you're, as you say, thrown into the world and uh, you take up all these different uh, hats that you call them that you wear, but they aren't necessarily chosen by you, right? You're not, you called it, you're not individuated. You're not an individual. You're just, um, you're living in the, uh, I think he called it they self, correct? Yes. Your public interpretation of yourself. Exactly. And so first of all, I think my question would be, why is that a problem, right? Like, what, what, what's the issue with that? Why is it somehow, he seems to be making a value judgment, right? About you being um, somehow better or more positive in some sense. It's somehow desirable to be more authentic. Um, and I think that's maybe then where you get into why this is potentially um, relevant for a political project, right? Especially when you, um, as you just alluded to, scale this up to some sort of communal project, right? Where yeah, you call it a priest, is leading people to a more authentic conception of themselves. So first of all, my question would be, why is it a problem to be inauthentic? Why does Heidegger get to tell me what isn't, isn't authentic? <laughs> and, um, and I have an additional question to follow up on that, but that would be my first reaction. Can I add something to what Nick said? Yeah. Is this dangerous? That's where, you know, part of the reason I wanted to have this podcast today and have uh, Mark on is because my own theory is that this is dangerous. This is not a good path for politics. When this potentially influences or contaminates politics, we're in the proto-fascist, we're in a proto-fascist type of milieu. Because from what I understand about the critics of Heidegger is that Heidegger didn't think that logic should stand in the way, nor evidence as we understand it in science. 
where the logical positivist school, the Vienna Circle, so-called, begun by Wittgenstein, but also followed by um, other philosophers like Carnot, accused Heidegger of being above or better than logic or better than evidence, or somehow he has this mystical pre-theoretical understanding and only he can be the channel by which you interpret this. Or, or, or I suppose other philosophers who uh, partake in his phenomenological understanding of the world and the like. So that to me just is a recipe for disaster. And in Mark's piece, he talks about how one might read an implication into that, that normal norms don't matter anymore. Normal boundaries that society imposes on people don't matter anymore. That charismatic politicians and populists and demagogues might find an opening there. And I suppose at the end of the day, why does this matter for our listeners and for politics? My hypothesis is it matters because it's potentially dangerous. So if Mark wants to indulge us with that, and I know a lot of it is speculation, but I would also be really uh, grateful to hear his thoughts. And, and before I forget, because it just popped into my head, I would say then also that we should have a rival hypothesis where science itself, right, if this is our only guiding principle for for human understanding, it itself poses its own dangers for politics. Okay, but we'll come back to that if we if we get the chance. If I can make sense of my chicken scratch here, I think here's where I'm gonna I'm gonna twist. I'm not gonna twist. I'm gonna change a little of what you said, Nicholas, and show and makes it even worse than than what you said. So you say, well, isn't 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 Heidegger just basic creating value judgment? Inauthentic is bad. Authentic is good. It's pretty clear. This, you know, he's pulling the, he's trying to pull the wool over our head over and over and over and over and over and over and over. He'll say, I'm not doing that in being in time. So I would say, let's give the think, let's take the thinker at his word. He's not doing that. But by saying he's not doing it, that, I think it's even more, if you want to talk about danger, that's where it's more dangerous. Because if he was creating value judgments, it would be clear that he's creating value judgments. And we could just say, okay, this is what. You know, it's like, this is your grape juice, man. So I don't like it. I'm not going to drink of it. I'll, I'm going to go find something else. But what he's pushing us to consider is in that this, sort of, this inauthentic versus authentic understanding is that if you care at all for meaning, if you ever do want to feel alive, if you ever want to feel the uh, vivacity of being alive and experience, then you will switch to authenticity. If you don't, it doesn't really matter. He doesn't care. He's not asking you to do it. It's not an exhortation. It doesn't gonna, it's not gonna change you into a different human being because he's not metaphysical. It doesn't make you into a higher human being. There's not a higher order to achieve like in Plato and Aristotle through this, but it does provide a sort of vividness. This is why I think Heidegger turns to poetry, only, almost only poetry later in life, a sort of vividness of experience and understanding where you are no longer trapped in, in preconceived notions, right? So why is he, what does he have against science? He, has, he just said, well, it's an, if you're going to be analytic or scientific, you have to have a posture towards phenomena in a certain way. You're going to narrow your understanding of phenomena in this way. It provides for a certain content and certain understanding, but it's not the full unfolding of what experience could be or might be. You read it and you feel that in, the inauthentic world is being diminished, but I think what it's the really thing that gets is unnerving here is this notion that it's more vivid, right? It's more meaningful. 
you know, you read a poem, it might be more meaningful for a minute, and then you go back to not being reading the poem. I think that's kind of what he said. It's like having these ecstatic moments. Is that what is dangerous, Vic? Very likely, right? Because classical philosophy, that of Plato and Aristotle, argue very vehemently that certain virtues are necessary for life and for philosophy in two domains, right? One of the key is being moderate prudent, moderate, wise, and courageous. Well, there is no room for moderation in Heidegger. There is no room for prudence. Those things are seem naive. There is only room for this open, ecstatic conveying of this being, right? This capital being, being. And it's, I would think that where you, human beings, if they're given to this, and this is what I wrote in the last section of my chapter, are given over to things that seem that have the semblance of totality, all encompassing, not like the separation of powers, you know, how brutally disgusting is that? Having politicians fight out for crumbs on the Senate floor uh, in Congress, right? And veto checks and blah, blah, blah. But if you can totalize a moment and a movement, right? If the scientists and the Fuhrer and the poets and the philosophers all are in some sort of common sink, I could see, yeah, I mean, you know, not knowing what the consequences are later down the line, who wouldn't be swept up in such moments? And maybe that's where you, Victor, you see the danger today. No, but let me just be stronger. It ultimately, inevitably culminates in totalitarianism. I don't understand how there's any other alternative once it's more than one person doing this, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're trying to use politics to infuse life with meaning. And inevitably, the prescription seems to be in this Heideggerian notion of authenticity in a collective that, ironically, you lose your individuality. So like you were saying, authenticity is about individualization or whatever word he made up. In fact, what it means is the will to power, because what happens is that a demagogue or a dictator or a tyrant can take over and everyone's melted into a pot of submission. Obviously, we have one data point, which is Nazi Germany and the fact that Heidegger got taken and seduced by that, if not catalyzed some of it. It's hard to know whether he was co-opted or whether he was a spearhead. Right. Uh, you could probably speak to this more than me, well, and I don't know. Yeah, I don't it. know what consensus is right now about that, the etiology of that. But the skeletons keep coming out of the closet. That's what the mm-hmm. right, and it okay. gets worse and worse and worse. That's what's, right. Really, that there's like things that people have been refused to publish that are being published, and now it's very hard to defend Heidegger to the point where people are canceling Heidegger. If you want to get into today's talk, right. even Heidegger is being canceled. <laughs> right. I have no, no skin in the game there, you know, and then hedging for Heidegger is not really. So just real quick, I think, Victor, you should definitely continue your thought. I think you had another point, but maybe this would be an interesting um, short interjection, right? Like you said that there's more coming out, um, I'm assuming, from, from, from Heidegger's own writing uh, that, that shows sort of the symbiosis between his philosophy and and uh, nazi ideology can you maybe speak to that like how, well, how does I that mean, go together and even not that it's just that he was a wretched man <laughs> that's what's okay. coming out that he was an anti-semite that he actually wrote these things down in his famous notebooks things of that nature not that he oh you know so the the common the convention is heidegger was mistaken he got swept up he saw the error of his ways and then he distanced himself, right? You know, this is Derrida, for example. These are the famous philosophers who had done everything in their power to kind of mitigate Heidegger's political involvement with Nazism. But the more he did leave the party, right? In 1934. He left the party. That's right. He, he leaves the party. 
or no, or I don't know if he leaves the party or steps down as rector. I don't know when he leaves the party. But, you know, and so nobody knows what to make of it. And then you could say, well, the philosophy from there on is just an obfuscation of his original position. A lot of people say that, that it, he becomes even more metaphysical because he does the original stuff and being in time and introduction to metaphysics is pretty damning evidence, right? That this is the philosophical support of this, of this system. But that he was brazenly anti-Semitic, this is what's coming out now. Thank you. Victor, you had another point. How is the political prescription that's read from this not totalitarianism, I suppose? If it's collectivized, if the search for authentic existence becomes collectivized. Yeah, can it be, is there any way this can be uh, rectified with pluralism? Or liberalism or moderation or just being a regular person and like maybe you get your ecstatic moments from watching sports or the birth of your child or going for a run and getting endorphins. That's what I don't understand. Like there's another route to this. It's called just being human and taking the nice, lovely silver linings when you can get them and you realize you're going to die. I mean, Heidegger says that's true and that defines hu human existence. And so that you try to cherish things as much as you can. And as you get older, you become wiser. And is there normality somehow? Could you s deduce normal? I know he doesn't like logic, but one thing that Heidegger is sometimes accused of is being kind of just inventing complex words to say pretty obvious things or um, sort of like very um, non-controversial stuff, right? Like, oh, you know, sometimes uh, life doesn't seem so meaningful and maybe you have to do something drastic to like escape that, right? You know, you could read this on some level and say, maybe this is actually pretty um, straightforward or positive advice on an individual level. But I think if you scale this up and you say that you have to follow some mass movement that's um, that imposes such thinking on a on everyone totally right? which um, as you say mark is baked into his philosophy then i think uh, that the issues really arise that, that victor is describing mm -hmm. right because i i mean if if i sort of have the freedom to to do a lot of these things that he's prescribing within bounds right which, which I suppose is another question whether or not that is even, uh, if you can square that with his philosophy, to say that I, I go, I'm going to have to respect the bounds uh, of, of other people, right? I can't um, sort of like be so authentic as to like reduce the authenticity of others, if you will. On an individual level, there's much less of an issue with this than if you scale it up uh, on a societal level. Do you disagree with that? I don't at all. Look, I'll, I'll say if I, I guess I have to now speak personally. It's like if I'm partial to anything, if there's any sort of maybe combine your victors in your question, if there's anything about Heidegger that I think is really worth preserving, it's everything prior to authenticity. And when, so when he speaks about the intelligibility of the world, what is it that we're doing in the world as human beings that gives rise to intelligibility on the one hand and also a lack of clarity on the other? I think him and Wittgenstein are the same person. I think they're basically, though, Nicholas, making up crazy words that don't exist in the German language, right? And so when you read them in translation, you're like, what in the world am I reading? Even when you sort of master the craziness, you're like, this is pretty interesting stuff. This is really helpful when you're thinking about meaning, you're thinking about thinking, and you're thinking about how, how things make sense to you on a very intuitive level, right? That's a colloquial way to praise Heidegger without having to add all the phraseology. Like maybe thinking is in fact much more intuitive than philosophy makes it out to be. So then everything else, I'm happy with, you know, condemning him with every, you know, with uh, every other critic.
but the, right but the but the key here is not to condemn him it's to actually figure out if the implication is totalitarianism right even if he doesn't realize it i guess that could you get on the record about that obviously we live in a probabilistic world so nothing is okay so is, is, i don't know i mean i don't know i don't know i don't know because if i if like if we take again if we take his word for it is this sort of primal creative moment totalitarian i maybe the only, honestly, oddly enough, I can only think of Machiavelli for some reason right here. Is the prince who is a new prince and a creator a totalitarian prince as well because a totalitarian imposes an order, makes people stick to it? Can we say that's, do we have a definition of totalitarianism? Sure, use that for okay, lack so of a then, better definition. So then Heidegger would never go that far, but Machiavelli will. So then, you know, if you put Heidegger if you have a, a three-headed monster called Heidegger, Nietzsche, and Machiavelli, I would say, yes, the answer is yes. You're going mm -hmm. to totalitarianism in this sort of, I'll call them all postmodernists, even though it makes little sense to call Machiavelli a postmodernist historically, but I will. Like, if you put these three postmodernist ideas together, yes, there's no way to skip totalitarianism because it's the absolute flattening of any norms. But right. I, And I wouldn't even say norms. I would say anything that... It, Rather than use norms, I'll be classical. I'll say anything that is high and low gets mm -hmm. demolished. Is that the okay. definition of postmodernism in your estimation? I would say the abandoning of any, any notion that, that, that the universe or nature, whether it's cosmological, human nature, has an order within it that is intelligible and that can be practiced. An intelligible order that, is, that we can understand and also organize our lives around. I'll say that's the antithesis of postmodernism. So that is postmodernism. That is the that's what postmodernism sort of uh, demolishes. I'm not I'm not convinced completely because so you you're saying Heidegger is a postmodernist in that sense? Yes. Even though you might think that the Nazism is the in fact a sort of creation of hierarchy and and a total system, right? So you're like, well, how does that fit within? not postmodernism. Well, because the creation of rank and order in Heidegger is poetic, not intelligible. It's a creation to use Nietzsche's thing. It's a creative moment. For Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, it's not about creation. It's about intelligibility. It's about using reason to, you know, it's, a, in fact, Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates have more in common with the scientists, which is they look out into the world they see what phenomenally appears to them. And based on all the multiplicity and differences that they see in the world, they say, well, look, in these different groups, these manifold groups, we see different orders, right? They might not be pr precisely manifested themselves here, but we see them in these, in these cases. And all these cases point to maybe a larger order, which would take a larger sort of project to think through. They're always seeing that within reality or nature exists a certain type of order. A postmodernist, a postmodernist would not say that. I think that's my. I would think the claim would be that there is no order within nature that can be a intelligibly understood and b something that you ought to then live your life around. Right. You get to decide yourself. Right. right. So, and it could be other any right. It could be Nazism or it could be any other movement. Right. It, it, there's no there's no ought. In but at the same time, 
where like Heidegger seems to have very strong notions of what what would and wouldn't be a good order to live your life around, right? Like, where does he get that from? Yeah, and you get the you get the sense that liberalism is well. He says it. He says that liberalism is no different than communism. He says that in the introduction to metaphysics. He says because he has a very despairing view of modern modernity, of modern society, of technology, of human beings. Ortega y Gasset, who's a Spanish philosopher, put it in better language in his his book. He calls it the mass man. Human beings become a mass. You know, it's like living in America would be Heidegger's uh, nightmare. <laughs> right? You're, you're driving on the expressway. Here we have something called Bucky's in Texas. It's a monument to gas stations, right? Everything is rationalized. Everything is produced for you. So there's none of that authentic experience that is this primordial possibility for human beings. Everything's plastic wrapping. I don't see where he Heidegger has this very despairing view of modernity and human beings. And he is not a fan of liberalism for those reasons. This is incredibly fascinating. I've learned a lot from just this segment right here. Um, my, I have a few observations. One, the misanthropy is amazing. It's a hatred for human beings and who they really are. And again, it's a paradox because supposedly Heidegger wants us to be authentic, but his notion of authenticity hates human beings for what they are. Human beings are animals. Human beings have these imperfect technologies called consciousness and language. They understand the world through the way evolution crafted us to. It's not objective because our sense of smell, touch, sight, taste are a reflection of the selective pressures that we uh, underwent as a species. And so therefore, in our narrow, you know, to take the platonic allegory, in our narrow, semi-blind understanding of the world in a cave, we try our best. And it's through logic, it's through science, it's through engineering, it's through speech, it's through art that we try to make our way in the world and we try to make our life better. And we've accomplished amazing things as a species, sending humans to the face of the moon, having supercomputers in our pockets maybe not eradicating, but mitigating the sa uh, ravages of disease. There's 8 billion people on the planet. It's because we use science, engineering, good government, ethics, compassion to better ourselves. So to me, it's just absolutely re revolting. I'll just say that. I don't want to cancel anyone, obviously, because that would be illiberal, but the conclusions are revolting. And I, I actually believe the, not even the conclusions, but just the analysis is wrong. And let me say another thing. The reason I hate metaphysics and I don't like Heidegger is because Heidegger is on the record as stating that logic is not the highest court of appeals. And Marx said that very well. He said the philosophers that preceded Heidegger, even the metaphysicians like Hegel, still believed in logic. They had an idea that logic was this thing that happened dynamically in the world through dialectics or whatever. Spirit working its way in the world, I believe, is what Hegel believed. But that, to me, is a huge mistake. Human beings do logic innately. It's part of our being there, if you will, or being in the world. And so that was one of the criticisms I thought that Wittgenstein, for example, in the Vienna Circle, lodged against uh, Heidegger. And I want to get Mark's reaction to this. What I believe Wittgenstein to remark about Heidegger is that, yes, he respects what Heidegger said about being and anxiety. And the fact that human beings run up, up against the limits of language, and also that human beings are astonished by being alive. 
Absolutely. In fact, this is an empirical question, and you could figure it out by taking surveys of people, and I bet you'd find all of these things to be true. But it doesn't follow that because you run up against the limits of language that you should then throw language out or introduce some other made-up thing to try to understand human existence, and that you should no longer use logic or evidence as the arbiter of certain questions. And so Wittgenstein's conclusion, from what I understand in his early writings, is that you should be silent. That when you run up against the limits of language, of logic, of evidence, the best response is silent. In fact, that seems to be more consistent with the religious traditions of mysticism uh, and of respect for nature and, and spiritualism. So I would like to get Mark's reactions to all of these critiques of, uh, of Heidegger and metaphysics and the Wittgenstein's reaction. And one would say the analytic school's uh, alternative, which is to double down on facts, logic, and evidence, maybe the process by which they the process they agreed on has been um, critiqued and uh, the philosophy of language has, in a sense, maybe overturned some of these original reactions to Heidegger in the 1930s, but at least the overarching project to me makes more sense. So thoughts on any of that, Mark? Would it be okay with you if we talk simply about Wittgenstein as opposed to Wittgenstein and Heidegger at this point? Sure. So, I mean, so let's, let's just say, let's throw Heidegger out, right? He's persona non grata without being canceled. I wonder though, the interesting thing about Wittgenstein, he's, he's in fact in his own way kind of elusive. I agree with certain things that you're saying about Wittgenstein, but I don't know necessarily that we want to bound him simply to, he's a logician. Mm -hmm. Is that okay? Yeah. And I think that the interesting thing about Wittgenstein, which makes him all, you know, very difficult and puzzling person to read is that he, like Heidegger, I think agree on this. You don't separate the subject from the object. They agreed to that separately. They came to this conclusion separately. Thing about Wittgenstein that's different than Heidegger, and I guess this is where you might say he's silent, is that all human beings are ordinary, right? Even the philosopher is an ordinary human being. So that all human beings are thrown into their world or their life world, and they're all acting and reacting within it. So everybody's in, and, and things are set off, you could say arbitrarily, by a culture or a language game. And then what Wittgenstein's always doing is he's testing language for its meaning. And so far, your, your explanation agrees with mine, that that's what Wittgenstein's doing? Yes. Okay, he's testing propositions. Except the thing that's interesting about Wittgenstein that I think doesn't really get mentioned maybe by the article or maybe by the school that then goes on to be founded called the analytic school is I think that Wittgenstein is far more intuitive in his thinking than, he, than he's made out to be. So I see Wittgenstein as someone who is always going back. So Wittgenstein is clear on one thing. Uh, you always look at the phenomena. You never go to theory. Wittgenstein, there's no theory out there of philosophy. Philosophy is not about theory. So there's no metaphysics. There's only the things that we are in, embedded into, and that's language and its use. As we see language unfold, that's what we can understand. That's the only thing that's intelligible. To but the thing that's interesting about language games is that if you were to draw a picture of them or, or create a mental map of them, you would see that there's multiple ways to enter a, a language game. I, language games aren't linear things, right? To be studied objectively on a piece of paper. So that you can always go back to a 
concrete use of something, but you can go back to it in different ways. When I look at Wittgenstein, I, re I remind myself on a personal level how I read books over the course of my life. So I might read the same book every 10 years. So I'm looking at a concrete meaning, a book written by an author. But in that book, although it's a particular instance of reading that book, what I see in that book is an economy of a whole. A whole thing comes to life. And I only get a glimpse of it. I have a sense of this whole, but it's only by the particular concrete use at a time, right? Or else how can, how can uh, Wittgenstein say that there's any such thing as a language game in the first place? That's a glimpse of a whole, of a thing appearing through the study of concrete cases, right? Language and words as they're used in their, in, in their instance. But he never takes something out. He never abstracts the language or a word and say, well, this is the meaning of this word, right? He's always, he go, plugs it back in. It's like, okay, let's see the meaning unfold. But what he does is, you know, he throws, he makes things, um, he presents them in high relief, you know, or like a pop-up book for kids where the, where the image pops up and then the kid opens up its eyes and it's like, wow, it's a building. And the interesting thing about Wittgenstein is like everything that is deep is familiar, but because it's familiar, we don't bother seeing it. But by seeing it in an unfamiliar way, now we can begin to think about it. So I don't think Wittgenstein can be reduced to what we, I'm not being derogatory, but to a, scient, a scientist of language or a linguist, properly speaking, right? He doesn't atomize language. I think he sees it. I'm going to throw one more image that I thought of. Have you ever, you know, go, gone out in your backyard or your front yard or whatever yard you might have in your house in the morning? And you've, there's this perfectly created spider web that is filled with mist and dew. And the sunlight is, is uh, gleaming on it. And you see it, you see partial aspects of the spider web on the one hand, because you see the sunlight penetrating it and you're walking around it. But at the same time, the whole of the entire spider web is something you catch in, you're catching sight of. So you're seeing these two things happening at the same time because your sight is capable of seeing these things. From my understanding of Wittgenstein, that's what Wittgenstein is doing with language. He's not being a simple logician of sentence structure. He's trying to capture things in, in their whole by only looking, but by simply magnifying parts. And I only say this because there's this very important, interesting relationship, which I don't know the specifics of between Goethe, Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein read Goethe, everything Goethe ever wrote. And he, Goethe's quote unquote, very unconventional science is something Wittgenstein took very seriously in his philosophy, although he's barely mentioned. Can you explain who Goethe is or in his contribution? Goethe, he wrote Faust. You know, he's a literary giant of Germany. And for Goethe, Goethe, there's one line that of Goethe that Wittgenstein quotes in his philosophical investigations, and I'll read it for you. Don't look for anything beyond the phenomena. They themselves are the theory. So what I would say is that Wittgenstein's approach to, for lack of a better word, thinking is I think a little bit more of, it's more um, abarca mas, how do you say that in Spanish? It's, it, it's open up to more than what we might conceive as the analytical school of linguistic, the study of linguistics today that you see in, say, the United States. 
Fair enough. So it almost sounds Heideggerian in some sense. Well, except for the mystical part. But, you know, he was a deeply religious man at the same time. So what are the political implications from Wittgenstein, if any? Um, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've never considered Wittgenstein's political. I would say that Wittgenstein would actually lend us towards a more conservative approach in politics, because what are you jumping into when you're jumping into revolutionary change? Well, it's an unknown and unthought thought, right? Like that's what Heidegger's about, right? The unthought thought, the unthought leaping into something. Wittgenstein doesn't seem to do that. Wittgenstein seems to be personal level, far more of a moderate creature in his way that he is musical, in the way he studies poetry, in the way he studies language. He's obviously a genius. He's doing things that nobody had really ever thought of before, but he's not, he's not willing to up. He is critical of science. He thinks it's arrogant in some sense. He doesn't like unifying theories of, say, he, do, he wasn't a fan of evolution, per se. He thought that people had predilections towards unifying theories, and that's what made them uh, seek out unifying theories. But he doesn't, in the language of science, there weren't enough data points to substantiate. He's less likely to look at grand, grand things. For political world, he's a case, he's a case-by-case kind of guy. <laughs> Maybe he's more Aristotelian in that regard. Is that or, or, or Burke or Oakeshott? Burke and Oakeshott being two thinkers of conservatism, right? After sure, the right. No systems are dangerous things, <laughs> right? Which I tend to agree with, by the way. If you think about totalitarianism and mm-hmm. all-encompassing uh, movements, Nick, your reactions? Yeah, I would say that from my limited knowledge, I would say Wittgenstein does have relevance for political communication, if nothing else, in the sense that like, his insistence on using making clear on what what it is that you're communicating his insistence on using words in the proper way his insistence on not obfuscating whatever your intentions are right in language i I think that there is some relevance there and i think you you can make some parallels there with um, language that is only intended to persuade that is not really concerned with the truth value of whatever it is that it's concerned with and i think wittgenstein is much more concerned with with truth right with logic with with actual substance nick that's brilliant it reminds me of george orwell and the fact that he's a philosopher in a sense mark do you want to talk about the politics of clear thinking and communication good writing sure so my so now i have to present my, finally i have to present my uh, political leanings as uh, i'm not a heideggerian I'm, I'm not an aristotelian i'm an orwellian uh, oh that sounds bad <laughs> well not in the 1984 sense right um uh. Orwell writes a piece that my graduate advisor made us read in graduate school called Politics in the English Language. I think this is, this is true not just of writers and journalists, it's true of academics, right? We're the worst when it comes to writing. We are really bad writers. Except right? for the three of us. <laughs> Except for the three of us, right? And so he basically says that, all, that writing itself is political in nature. And worst, the, the worst users of the language are politicians. Politicians are, are by nature clever obfuscators, right? Just look at the euphemisms they use when they speak so as to sort of detract attention from the actual reality of a thing. You know who's actually a sec- my secondary philosopher is George Carling, the comedian, the American comedian, has a very interesting piece on euphemism, which is exactly in line with Orwell. Orwell's saying that what is the obligation of, of the human being, right? Or the writer? 
not the philosopher, just a human being with a head up, is to clarify meaning. And how do you clarify meaning? Well, you clarify meaning by uh, always asking yourself, what it is that I'm saying, right? Am I getting my meaning across? Am I using a concrete image in each sentence, right? Is that, am I actually paying attention to the words I'm using? And how can I say this in a fresh way, right? How can I freshen up what I'm saying? And in the sense that I think Wittgenstein and Heidegger agree, it's very easy for language to become familiar in the way that we're no longer experiencing things. We're no longer living out language. When you take Orwell to heart, which I have, you think, this is where I, maybe I'm reading into Wittgenstein's things that aren't there, is that you, you try to see language for the first time when you're writing. You're trying to cultivate image when you're writing so as to make yourself understood. And if you can't see that one you read, then there's something wrong with the writing. Or we'll say this is just when people are using mere phraseologies, stacked up phrases upon phrases, which just come to them. You kind of just download them probably from bad habits, right? This is writing at, at its worst. And it's actually, but have the political repercussions is that nobody has any clue of what anybody is saying. So you can't clarify. One, you don't clarify yourself. You don't articulate yourself. So in a democratic society, how is it that you're supposed to persuade people about anything genuinely or, or truthfully? That's helpful. Nick, reactions? Um, I think my favorite uh, Wittgenstein story comes from a piece by Harry Frankfurt, which is called On Bullshit. And um, the piece is essentially exactly about this point of sort of the absolute basic necessary condition for anyone to make sense of reality, right, is an insistence on not just clear language, but like in not saying anything that is not true, because you're not a you're misleading yourself, but you're misleading others around you sort of like uh, keeping them from being able to perceive reality as as it is. Right. And I think that's in other words, of, gas gaslighting is the modern term, right? I suppose so, but it's it's even more. In, I, I think Wittgenstein would say it's even more insidious than that, right? It's like these these <laughs> um, these phrases that people use, right? I think um, it's hard to put into words, right? But I think it's it's in so many small details where uh, communication gets away from the truth and gets more towards just you making noises, right? And people having some interpretation of that. It's not really clear what it is that you're communicating. The piece that I was mentioning, this small segment is Wittgenstein devoted his philosophical energies largely to identifying and combating what he regarded as insidiously disruptive forms of nonsense. He was apparently like that in his personal life as well. This comes out in an anecdote related by Fania Pascal, who knew him in Cambridge in the 1930s. And now she is quoted saying, I had my tonsils out and was in the Evelyn nursing home feeling sorry for myself. Wittgenstein called, I croaked, I feel just like a dog that has been run over. He was disgusted, saying, you don't know what a dog that has been run over feels like. <laughs> right? I think that's ex exactly what it is that he's all about. The truthful use of language. What you're describing too, Mark, correct, with, with when, you, when you call yourself an Orwellian, right? I think the absolute baseline in politics is that you at the very least are concerned with the truth value of what you're saying. That, you, that we agree on a set of facts that we can interrogate, right? That we can agree on making uh, statements and hypotheses that we can test instead of just assuming what we're trying to prove and then using whatever means necessary to be as persuasive as possible to get people to follow us, which would be a completely different project, right? Which would just sort of assume an, uh, a goal and then just say whatever is necessary, I'll, I, will, I will do that. That's, so called, that's called policy-based evidence-making, Nick. 
where you have exactly. a goal in mind and you adduce whatever evidence through motivated reasoning and confirmation bias gets you to that goal. Uh, the problem is politicians, lawyers do it, and in doing it, they obfuscate the truth and, and just bullshit, basically. Can I add a third, uh, an extra element then to our conversation that has been missing? Sure. Please. Which is that there is philosophy that is not metaphysical, potentially would aid people in their desire to speak truthfully, which is dialectic. Like Socrates, you mean? Yeah, it's like Socrates, right? So let's not get worried about Plato's metaphysics at this moment, is that everything that we're saying is always displayed in a Socratic dialogue. You mean could be articulated in a Socratic dialogue? Could be articulated, and, and it seems like Socrates demonstrate this with his interlocutors. I, I think the only, and the thing that makes dialectical reasoning more political than let's say call let's say that we're logicians here is that dialectic has it within it embedded a sort of notion of friendship friendliness right one is friendly to the interlocutor so one has a sort of posture towards reasoning that is also aids in the, so there's a reality to politics that the ancient philosophers uh, thought of that isn't simply articulations of truths so or else, you know, we're in this position that we're in right now is not helpful. Presuming that we have a preponderance of evidence of articulated truths will win against articulated bats, right? Articulated falsehoods. Well, that doesn't necessarily win out in politics, does it? There has to be some, some other mediating factor that would bring you to want to see the my position. And it may not be the articulated truth in the first place. It may be persuading the things that you are already have a predilection towards, have some sort of attachment to. So in, in fact, isn't most politics in, in that sense as winning people's attachments as opposed to winning their, their better rational natures over, their better uh, faculties of reason? Or is it... Yeah, I mean, that, that's a very provocative question. Um, I think I know what Victor's opinion is. I'm not sure what my own is. So are you saying effectively we just need to hope for uh, the right people being more persuasive. But, well, uh, let me rephrase what Nick said. What then is the bottom line then? What do we take away from what you just said, Mark, in terms of the practice of politics or the practice of discourse among friends about political subjects? Okay, so I think the first thing for us in politics is that we first have to look at the end. We are right now in a political reality. Is our end for more truth and more logic and more evidence. I don't think that's our end, right? That's not well, that's my end, but okay, continue. <laughs> but that's not an end. That's not a political end. I believe it is, but continue. Well, then if it was a political end, what would it look like? The destruction of metaphysics, which is actually what I no, want to do true. better than no, Heidegger. That's not true, because the only way that yours is a political end, it would be the rule of technocrats. Not necessarily, but they would have a role to play, yes. Which they do, right? Let's say technocrats. They do, but not the role they deserve and not the role they could play. They could play a higher role. Okay, so the rule of technocrats, presuming the rule of technocrats existed. No, that's an extreme statement. I don't want the rule of technocrats or philosopher kings. I just want a larger role for them in certain domains. Okay, but that presumes that the domains, they don't get, they don't manifest themselves by some sort of magic, right? So they have to be. No, it's the democratic process with educated citizens who are informed and who give each other the benefit of the doubt and who definitely one of the things they do pursue is the common wheel what is good for everyone okay. so uh, then i would say that in some fundamental way you are classically oriented you could put me in whatever category you want 
I, or, or, I, or I'll put, just put it like this, that you, the better political outcome for us, and we're going to agree here as a group, is for some sort of ordered society. Oh, of course. Okay. That, that goes without saying. That's and the that, first building block. Then there's many others. And that, that the average citizen, which is that this is the person that who matters right now for us, not the technocrat. The average citizen has to have a desire to be better off more enlightened, I hate that word, but we'll just use it, than they are right now. Perhaps. I'm not clear that's the case. It could be on the supply side, in fact. It could be that the institutions have are corroded or dysfunctional, and it could be that the average citizen is just fine. I'm not sure. That, in fact, is a political science question, and that kind of gets off kilter in terms of well, how do we get to that end? I, I don't know the answer. I make no, I'm just saying, how do we get there? I was like, I, I just, so I, if I go back to my original point, I don't see, I don't see how more truth means we'll be better. We will be better. I can oh, guarantee you. But, but if you think about it, let's just, my bad, here's a bad history. We have more truth today. Uh, and some people in 2020 would say that we're not better, right? We don't have more truth. That's the problem. And then, it's because we've allowed metaphysics to infect politics. That's my thesis uh, at this point. Maybe <laughs> pose two questions to disentangle this discussion. Let's just construct a thought example here, right? A society that is completely built on truth. Is that, is that possible? Is that desirable, Mark? I don't think it's possible. Okay. Simply because, you know, the problem of uh, every human being is that, so let's say you, you, we're the best in our fields, no mm -hmm. matter what. We are, right? We're the best. Of in course, yeah. The problem <laughs> with being the best in your field is that you have to make, you have to work with what you have and you have to sacrifice the fact that even though you might know everything you can about economic math or politically economic math, because you're a political economist, you do it at the risk of not knowing man as, uh, man in different domains, right? Human right. beings in different domains, which if we knew human beings in different domains, You'd be in a better position to be, speak about human beings and politics generally. Now, I don't have your knowledge of economics or political science because I'm a catastrophe when it comes to political science. So I speak of human beings in the domains of what are their uh, appetites or desires and their passions and whether they should have an order or not have an order, right? But what kind of purchase does that give me? When it comes to what was it, Victor? The policy of technocratic policy to adjust. Uh, political life in some domains in some domains so do, if we aggregated all those domains and get experts in every domain will we have a, a society of truth how would that I, that doesn't make sense to me it would be something approaching that as a sort of glimpse of that but i guess i still i i fall back to a sort of classical view of this like then you you would unavoidably need a metaphysics you you can't avoid a, a metaphysics or to use a different word that isn't so flammable something that looks at the whole i would want to challenge you victor and ask let's say we could create some sort of government or society or or people that are composed of perfectly rational and perfectly informed problem solvers right although right? that's not my goal but just suppose no, uh, for exactly. sake of argument okay, exactly for sake right of argument. Like we're just sort of um, speaking yeah. into the blue here that right. doesn't really mean that we have any idea of what the problems are Right? Is there such a thing as like an objective science of what relevant political problems are? I think I must agree we here with Mark, right? I think mm -hmm. that is something that is more of an ideological project, right? I'm not sure ideological is a better word than metaphysical, right? 
But um, I just, it just seems to me like that's a value judgment decision that is not necessarily objective. Correct. In a subjective community that adheres to values, you can uh, identify and articulate problems. And it's the values and the ideologies around those values that allow you to do that. Uh, absolutely. It doesn't fall for, like mana from heaven. I'm not arguing for the technocrats to decide what the problems are. Mm-hmm. That's a democratic process and it changes over time and it's contextual and it does depend to a certain extent on ideology. Ideology identifies, frames the problems and in fact espouses solutions. A democratic process by which the solutions can compete with each other, I submit is better, but to me, not, none of this is incompatible with democracy whatsoever. In fact, in democratic governments and liberal democracies, there have been certain policy domains that have been more technocratic over time. Central banking would be one. Uh, Antitrust is another. Public health, although obviously politicized like central banking and like antitrust, nothing can be depoliticized entirely. And that's not a good objective either. But there is such a thing as facts, logic, and evidence. And it's a tool we've honed as human beings over our history, over 250,000 years now. And We've gotten better at it, and we've found a way to introduce it into politics. And if you look instrumentally at the consequences of doing that, they're actually good consequences. But By my, good, meaning meaning that people look at them and they're better off versus what came before, which is superstition, stabbing in the dark, making stuff up, uh, giving political actors power to do whatever is at their caprice or discretion. I do agree with you, but I would still challenge you and ask if that is so, right? If people are actually better off, why this sort of resurfacing of, you you call it metaphysics, sort of reinserting itself into, into political conversations, right? Or I, I, you could also call it like the repoliticization of previously depoliticized aspects that you've just described, right? Like central banking, like public health, like antitrust like um, even just judicial review, things mm-hmm. like that, uh, that are being repoliticized under the guise of different kinds of ideologies. Is it possible that the kind of government that you describe, right, like more moves towards technocracy, technocratic government also induce backlashes that are of metaphysical or ideological sort? To be sure, of course, that is democracy. There are always going to be backlashes. And then there are going to be, if you follow the democratic process, reform. An improvement. There's no static. You and I, Nick, have agreed endlessly about the lack of utopia. It will never come. And moreover, here's my beef with metaphysics. To try to use politics to find meaning is a mistake and a dead end. Human beings do not find meaning in politics. Politics is a tool to solve problems, and it has been since we invented politics after the agricultural revolution. The reason we invented politics is because we had certain problems like the tragedy of the commons with common pool resources where we overgrazed or or destroyed things that we held in common and we couldn't come up with decentralized solutions at a small scale. Uh, Another reason we have politics is to provide public goods. uh, And the reason we can't do that at a small scale is because we have prisoners dilemmas with free riding or just the lack of repeated interactions that allow us to have collective action. Let's just be clear anthropologically and theoretically why politics exists the way it does, why we have centralized governments, taxation and public goods and the solution of market failures. That doesn't mean politics hasn't been arrogated by the powerful to do what they want. Of course it has. There's distributional issues always, even with public goods or any other uh, problems that politics tries to solve. 
the mistake, and this is why I cannot stomach Heidegger or any metaphysics contaminating politics, is to think that we should use politics as a vehicle for self-actualization or to get closer to our authentic selves or for some totalitarian vision or to impose utopia. That's where it goes off the rails. That's a shortcut towards other things that we find unfulfilling in our lives where we could use art, science, literature. We could use sports. Uh, we could use charity. We could use our love for each other uh, expressed through religion or even irreligious uh, ideologies. There are so many domains where we could find meaning. We could be parents. We could adopt children. We could be good to our neighbors. We could be go and feed and clothe homeless people and help them get back on their feet. The possibilities are endless, right? Uh, okay. That to me is the fundamental mistake. And Heidegger to me is the accent in the 20th century where that occurs. Mm -hmm. Marx as, as well, the way that Marx, not Marx's analysis so much, but his prescriptions. And the idea that we can get this totalizing, finally uh, emancipating uh, nirvana on earth, or even glimpses of being versus our inauthentic lack of being or whatever. First of all, it's built on bullshit. Uh, it's built on pseudo statements. It's built on, on what Orwell warned us against, which is obfuscation. It's built on opacity. It's built on people making words up that don't exist without a reference to objective reality. It's built on illogic, and logic is something intrinsic to human beings, both deductive and inductive. You see it anthropologically. You can find deduction and induction before the Greeks, even though they were able to codify it and explicate it. That is what I'm warning against, why I wanted to start with Heidegger, and I feel Marx's piece is so valuable. Because to me, it intimates a certain political project. And I would say it's not inevitable because everything is probabilistic, but the probabilities north of whatever threshold makes me uncomfortable. I think we all agree that we see what the dangers are. But I don't think you have given me a sufficient explanation of what makes politics better. Now, you can tell me that politics is not a place where meaning is where one comes to find their meaning in life, one is fulfills themselves, only insofar as a democratic society will allow you to pursue your individual preferences, right? I think that's what you meant by literature or parenting or religion. But what is, isn't, I'm going to use a very colloquial word, isn't the world that you, you need, and here's where I go back to the end, don't we need a sober democratic order for this to work, and therefore you need sober citizens. Yes, of course. Sober politicians, a sober order, and sober citizens. But that is not yeah. something that by force-feeding logic into a population, you will get. You'll Nobody, get that. that that's a straw man. I would never force-feed anyone anything. Logic is an intrinsic birthright of humanity that we all use. We can just hone it or not. That's a different question. So then... Within a democratic order, while reason has some a, a place to play, right? Rather than power, rather than uh, discrimination, right? rather than yes. Okay, that itself is not doesn't seem sufficient to induce people to be more sober. Maybe it's not. I don't have a theory of how humans become sober. That's not my. That's not what I'm trying to do right now. Mark, are you saying that there needs to be something like a pseudo religion? Well, around... liberalism is a pseudo religion, right? <laughs> 
but it, do, do you feel like it's necessary for people to conceive of it that way right that you people shouldn't just trust certain ideas because they make sense as in they're logical but rather there needs to be some sort of belief that that well, is somewhat metaphysical right in say the constitution right. so the force behind liberalism if i understand it in the most colloquial sense is the notion that one is a self-governing that that presumes a certain responsibility which is a, a kind of you know weak virtue in the, but a virtue nonetheless and that it depends on the principle that we call freedom and people are willing to do something about that beyond fill their preferences and equality too and that equality, we are equal right? and that right. without without that language liberalism would not have been as successful as it was uh, agreed. Those are self-evident or, or truths, that you according to the, the Declaration of Independence. Or defend a country over, right? Because you have to ask people to do things that are relatively illiberal to defend liberalism. That's all true, but what does that imply for grandiose systems of philosophy and metaphysics and obfuscation and opacity is a different story. You can get that with George Orwell or with Wittgenstein. That's what I'm trying to say. That you're right. It's just that it may be that what you are calling, there's got to be. I'm, a, I'm, I'm much a more of a middle ground, maybe because I'm a middle child type of... Mm. Uh, there's room for philosophy that isn't simply analytic, but speaks to human beings in ways that are not reduce, reducible to, I'll call it the rational economic man, for lack of a better phrasing. And that there is something of a, a philosophy, and I think the Founding Fathers understood this in the Federalist, in the Federalist Papers, there is something about the passionate attachments that people have, and there is something to the the science of understanding human nature in a more in a broader sense and that whether and i know that makes things messy and that that doesn't necessarily lead to anything verifiable in an experimental sense but it is something that allowed the liberal order to come into existence in the first place we can all agree on that i guess yes to make a concession that all seems pretty sensible i want to go back to your argument say like contextual ideology isn't just this sort of sui generis uh, societal movement and then that the technocrats go and fix the problems someone has to be able also to understand the boundaries of the the ideologies taking place within a context and be this perhaps the more sobering bring out a sort of sobering, an ideology that sobers the ideology, right? So we have MLK in the 20th century, right? A gra the grand reconciliator of the 20th uh, American century. Or, or Nelson uh, Mandela, Nelson in, South Mandela Africa. in South Africa, right? There, there's, exactly. there's, some, there's something to the classic sense of human uh, practical wisdom. That's all I'm throwing out there. I can't, I'm not proving uh, it. I think we'd all agree with that then. Yes, we'd all agree on that. And, you know, the reasoning there was sympathy. Right, a sort of it, it was empirical in a very different sense. Mandela was an empiricist of the human soul, if you want, but he he could understand human beings in ways that others couldn't. And had he not been there, who knows what would have happened? And and in fact, I think Wittgenstein wouldn't. I mean, I think there's something to intuitive understanding that is deeply embedded in Wittgenstein, and I just don't see it sourced out today in today's sort of analytic posture towards this philosophy. Right. I think I will agree with Mark, right, that there is something to larger sort of pseudo-religious adherence to, to certain ideals, to certain philosophies. 
I guess we haven't really explored how these things actually influence politics, right? I think that would be a different discussion, maybe for another day. But what I would be curious about is, Mark, what's your estimation? Like, where are we at currently, say, in the US? What do people believe? What are they influenced by? And how has that maybe changed over the last 10 years? And where do you think it's going go, like, forward in the next five years? Obviously, the difficulty is like saying, is this a blip? on the screen, mm-hmm. right? Because if it's if it's a blip on the screen, then it's like nothing's changed. <laughs> gotcha. Right? We're just in a sort of we're just in a moment of this historical burp. But so I can only use a, a very uh, weak analogy, you know, analogies make of what you will of it. So the dour prediction is that we're and and the weak analogy is that we're headed where democratic Athens is at, was headed at the time of it the rise of its own demagogue. Mm-hmm. Where the people had become so accustomed to their way of life that generally, from a cultural generational perspective, they had become uh, weak and seduced easily by things that were, to use an ancient, very desirous, right? So ancient Athens was about bling. It was about money. It was about, right? It was about daring. It was about glory. Celebrities, right? Yeah. So the weak analogy is like, well, aren't we, isn't that us? Aren't Sounds we? Familiar, yeah. You know, we're, so you guys, I don't live it because I live in rural Texas where we're, we're the Spartans of the country and you're the Athenians. That is Trump rose amongst the fact that, you know, coastal elites now dominated the cultural centers of the country, the political centers of the country, uh, but they're not the kind of people that would fight and die for a country, right? So we have these sort of internal divisions within the country that is ripe for the picking. You forgot that the demos actually rules this place and the demos is a ferocious beast in the end. So that's the, that's the classical warning. Uh, so if the classical warning has any purchase today, uh, and, and I'm sure there's all these, reasons why we're not like them, right? At least politically, separation of powers, we're not at war, so to speak. But it could be that, you know, we are we are in a position where we don't believe in principles. And I would say that is the problem of postmodernism. There's nothing to really live by, die for, sacrifice yourself for. Your tribe is the best thing. Love of your own is not patriotism is love of your own, is not love of a of an ideal. And uh, the dour prediction is it's just going to get worse because I've told people, I think, wait till the real demagogue shows his face, not this farce. This is just this is just someone who's good at television, not someone who, who believes his own, well, maybe believes himself. But polit- a pol- the real political demagogue, whenever that does appear, I mean, I think we, we'd be in a lot of trouble because what would that look like? Historically, they do get worse. Is there anything that you can do to fight uh, back from that brink, to get back from that development? You know, so I don't know that, right? Because it's like, what is this original point where principles are founded and then uh, coordinated around? Like, do you need a lot of talent? Do you need a lot? Do you need a sort of talented, principled people to be the bulwark? In my eyes, you you need a massive defeat of the Republican Party, right? It needs to be just a crisis has to be, it has to implode on itself so that all the rats jump off the ship and then from the wreckage, something new happens, right? Because that, but that would be the most difficult thing, right? Because out of, out of crisis and wreckage, you'd have the opportunity to create something. But where are the, I mean, who's not self-interested and who's not ambitious and who's simply a principled 
person. It seems like those those lions are dead, right? The John McCain's American politics are gone. So who who and who will carry the flag, pick up the torch, use those sort of cliches? So I don't know. In broad strokes, very much agree with Mark. But I think the real question is going forward, what is there to be done to move say the US out of this peculiar position that it's in, both politically, but also uh, philosophically, right? Where I think I agree with Mark, right? For most people, big ideals don't seem to really uh, structure their lives anymore about some immediate advantage, if you want to call it that abstractly. And politically, it's not so much about compromise, it's more about victory, about zero-sum interactions. And I'm just curious because I think the analysis and um, the issue has been diagnosed, but now what? Is this the only direction this can go? It's only going to get worse? Or is there something that you can do to to rectify the situation? So those are big, grandiose ideas. My message always is the same. And this is an analogy to sports. The mistake on a sports team is when you get desperate and you try to score quickly or you try to do things that are outside of your normal playbook or the capacity of your players. In football, and I mean American football, where you tackle each other and score touchdowns, that would be like getting desperate because you're behind and you feel the pressure of the clock winding down and you start to throw bombs downfield rather than run the ball or have passes behind the line of scrimmage, like a screen pass or maybe five yards down and make su- make up some territory slowly and be patient and be confident in your playbook and your ability and the ability of your players to rise to the occasion. And inevitably what happens is you gamble for resurrection by throwing these bombs deep downfield and you get intercepted or it makes you make more mistakes and then the hole is deeper. And then you have to double down on something drastic. The opposite of that is small ball take chunks of yardage at a time, punt the ball when it's wise to do it, when it's judicious. Don't gamble with the whole game just to seal victory early and uh, find a way to stop the the insecurity or the feeling of anxiety. This is almost Heideggerian, right? So then the question is, what do we do? And my analogy is we play small ball. And what does that mean philosophically, politically, in terms of our goals, in terms of how we go about it? We remind ourselves that we're human beings who are flawed. We're in a collective project together. It's an experiment. It's a flawed experiment, but it's something worth fighting for and preserving because there's a lot of nobility behind our experiment. The problem with our experiment is that it uncovers the muck and the terrible things about being human and being part of a society after the agricultural revolution. And what is that muck? bigotry, sexism, racism, discrimination, homophobia, and all kinds of things that all human societies are guilty of, where all human societies have not treated others or minorities sometimes fairly, equally, or even humanly. And so there's always claims that some people are superior because of their sex, religion, ethnicity, family name, the land they own, where their kids went to school, where they go to school, et cetera, right? The problem in our society, I think, is that because of social media, because we have much more information, because we're much smarter. If you look at IQs, they've gone up. This is called the Flynn effect. Because we're much more ethical, because we're much more woke in a sense, right? That's what wokeism is about. We're awake to this stuff. We don't know what to do now. And it's almost like we feel desperate in the fourth quarter of a football game and we have to throw Hail Marys. 
And that's what Heidegger tried to do in his philosophy. I, I feel that was the mistake. Forget about facts, logic, and evidence. Let's find a shortcut to get to authenticity. Let's have some weird collective movement where we melt our consciousness into uh, the whole and, be, and uh, find a totality. He was 37 years old, so who can blame him at 37? And that was only a few years ago. I'm 43 before I really understood what it was like to be a father and a professor that really knows what he's doing for his students and all this other stuff and a good husband. I would have liked shortcuts too, but there are no shortcuts. That's the problem. And when we try to use politics to cure everything quickly, and when we try to use politics to find meaning and profundity, that's where we get into trouble because it ends in totalitarianism. So I feel we have to play small ball. And what does that mean? Civic organizations have to flourish again. Neighbors helping neighbors. People being tolerant and giving each other the benefit of the doubt. Unsexy things like empathy, like sympathy, like stepping in each other's shoes. Things that are just simple in the basis of democratic life. Rather than here's our quick bullet train ride to salvation, utopia, where everything will be better, or here's our silver bullet answer for all that ails us. So let me tell you something that President Obama said in 2019 in an interview for the Obama Foundation. He was expressing concerns against this wokeism, not so much for its identification of these things, because that's part of liberalism, but for some of its solutions. He said the idea of purity and that you're never compromised and you're always politically woke and all that stuff, Obama said. We should get over that quickly. He said the world is messy. There are ambiguities. Ambiguities. People who do really good stuff have flaws. People who are fighting may love their kids and share certain things with you. My only prescription always has been we have to find the common humanity and common ground and not forget the fact that we share much more than separates us and the fact that we know how to do this. We don't need metaphysics. We don't need elaborate, grand, grandiose plans. We just need to be better human beings, better citizens, better husbands, better fathers, better. Uh, I'm speaking only from my perspective, not for other people who don't have those roles. It's just because that's what I know how to say, right? Better teachers, right? In these small incremental ways, that's what small ball is about. And you, by the end of it, you've scored a touchdown, right? Through five yards here, three yards, maybe a pass downfield that was kind of a, a gamble, but it was a calculated gamble. The final thing I'll say, much maligned political philosopher and also boxer named Mike Tyson, a very intelligent man who's not well understood, but if you actually read interviews with him and look at Watch a documentary about him in 2009 or his one-man show on HBO. I think it was 2011 or 12 when that came out. One of the things he's on record for saying is, how dare my opponents enter the ring with what he considered at the time, and some consider him after Muhammad Ali, the best heavyweight uh, uh, champion of all times. How dare they come with these skills, he said, these primitive skills my opponents have. It's disrespectful. And of course, I'm going to beat them. To me... These attempts at coming up with those answer quickly, taking shortcuts, throwing the ball downfield, getting the ultimate victory, having the last word, burning people on Twitter, being a, on social media, someone who is just looking to troll instead of be constructive. 
someone who's totalizing an I and binary and Manichaean in their thinking about the world rather than President Obama saying it's gray, it's it's difficult. Everyone is mixed race in a sense. If you look at their DNA, every, maybe people are trying to do their best, but they just don't know how to go about it. They make mistakes. They say things they don't mean or that are offensive, right? And again, I'm not castigating the political left on the political right, as my brother mentioned, it could be much worse. But that to me is like Mike Tyson saying, the opponents are coming into the ring and they're not prepared and they're disrespect disrespecting me. We disrespect democracy and each other if we think there's an easy solution and we can't, and we're too good to do the hard work. And the hard work when it comes to democracy is these kinds of conversations. It's getting education, it's working hard, it's being tolerant of each other, it's being good listeners. It's electing politicians who are prudent, who uh, aren't populist demagogues and looking for easy solutions. And it's respecting the experts like myself and my brother and you, Nick, who have spent our entire life, maybe we're imperfect, but trying to improve things in ways that we understand better than others, just because we've had the opportunities and, and uh, experiences that allow us to say something, let's say about central banking, antitrust, public health, philosophy, how to teach our students the best way to learn about the economy or about how our democratic system functions or whatever. So I have a very modest proposal. Maybe there's metaphysics behind it. Maybe there's a national religion or some kind of article of faith that's the first move. And then we can use facts, logic, and evidence after that. But it's not complicated. We've done it so far imperfectly. It's never been uh, perfect for everybody. But the fact that we have a system that can identify the flaws and in a practical, small, civic-minded way make progress through the liberal tradition is good enough for me. It's been good enough so far. I don't see any alternative, as we've said before. Uh, and that's why I'm so skeptical of metaphysics in the Heideggerian sense of grandiosity, meaning profundity. That's like a cheap thrill. It's like getting high for one second, but then it wears off. And the hangover is, what if you ran your economy with these ideas, but you didn't understand actually how to grow it and tax it properly to provide basic public goods or like uh, redistribute to those less fortunate? And, and there's a science and technique to that that is very complicated. And, and a lot of economists and political scientists have spent centuries trying to figure that out. Uh, so to throw everything out and say, let's do this thing, this new way, right? And, and about of, um, I don't know, um, revolutionary upheaval is not the way either. We're going to end up undermining uh, the objectives that we have, which is to come up with a better society and a more uh, perfect union in the language of uh, United States uh, republicanism, small r, right? If Victor, if you think what we've done so far is good, maybe we need to sort of rekindle our appreciation for a more renaissance approach to what we do as academics. The political philosopher should be a better economist. The economist should be a better political philosopher and so forth. And maybe we're, maybe our expertise, a bit, maybe the perverse incentives of the universities are somewhat to blame for the fact that we have been sidelined in this argument. The myth of like a generalist smart person that gets to like solve all problems is, is also a little bit dangerous, but I'm sure. sure that's not what you... I would say that the, but I would say that the, so I'll be, a, I'll be classical again, that the statesman is that general. That's what the political philosophers realized, not philosopher kings. They knew that that was a little, that was an extreme but the statesman was supposed to be this person. So like, let's say Lincoln was that person. Maybe he's, he's a myth, but he's that rare occurrence in history of the person who sort of combines not only the, the temperament, but the intelligence that was necessary to see the country through a crisis. Where is that person now? We could really use that person. 
and maybe that's too much of a burden to be placed on the the accidents of history. So that's why the founders created a system that chokes itself. I'm not sure if this is if Milton Friedman actually said this, but at the very least, that sort of like integral element of his philosophy is that you don't really want to create a political system, says he, that requires people to to be these uh, larger than life figures, right? Like you want to create a system where even if these people are completely um, incompetent or possibly even nefarious, they're still forced to do something that is like almost the right thing to do, right? Mm-hmm. At the same time, you know, I think the the issue might be, if if we're speaking in abstract terms again, that such a system that also never produces someone like Lincoln, Lincoln. you know, because you don't have any incentives to, to become that person. Sure. Um, and maybe that's our, if I were to answer my question again, the last question is like, well, what's the problem? It's like, the problem is that there was a lawyer, uh, there was a dean of the law school of Vanderbilt who basically gave a talk once at my older institution that the bureaucratic state is the now the per, is the state that we live in and there's nothing else to do uh-huh. that because the the state is meant to serve the individual but i in my mind it's like that presumes the status quo he couldn't have seen this crisis right so the self-sacrifice an individual is nowhere to be found. So Vic, the, the difficulty with your answer is like where maybe we should play small ball, but, but that's if we all agree to the rules of the game, right? That the game has meaning, like that we should, we should play this game, that we should put our children in pads and helmets in the first place. Like, well, why should I do, why should I even play this game with you? What would it take to move, you know, for, for lack of a better word, uh, term, like a larger than life person who is classically ordered, not Heideggerianly ordered, might be necessary in these times. But also the but people that, too, I think. And, 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 and the well-meaning, and is, right, the well-meaning character, human, yes, I agree. This is the compass of people. People aren't Heideggerian. People are not like that they they are turned into that okay if, if you think of people that's not their operating system right it, the it's scary thing is that people yeah. are, ter- are being turned into that in isolation as well maybe that's okay. what it is like by what you meant by the danger of social media you don't have to be out in a collectivity to become a collectivity right to be lost in correct, the, right? correct. So, so how do i reach you and i are in a position right now as teachers that isn't that I find myself in a very odd position, but I, uh, to reach my students today is much more difficult than it was 10 years ago. What do you mean by that? Um, because there's a lot of more barriers between me and, and what captivates their interests. So I teach books, for instance, and so the love of books, the love of philosophy. And between me and the book are crumudgy way of saying this is their cell phone, right? their smartphone. But it's not their smartphone that is the thing between me and them. It's that... All these interfaces of interaction between you and me are today mediated by by this device and everything it can do for you. So it militates against me trying to have an honest conversation with them when it's time to have that conversation. Though at the same time, they're very desirous of it, but they not they don't they don't necessarily have the habits of mind and heart right now to get there. Now they want it, they need it, but we don't necessarily offer it at a university anymore. Right? It's not necessarily the project of the university to shape hearts and minds. So, Victor, we have to like re-energize institutions that do cultivate these aspects. So, their civic piety, civic religion, and the university education. Well, at least I don't see the university is offering this. I, I see individuals like individuals like Victor thinking about this, but not. There's no m- movement as a whole where the university is the 
a place to rebirth, all those sort of well-meaning things that Victor was talking about. They're rather the opposite. They're, they're places of contestation. Unless well, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with contestation either. It's, the question is, how do we do it? How do we do the contestation, right? The contestation is healthy because democracy is dynamic. It, it's never resting in place. Okay. Liberalism is a project towards values and ends, but because of history, because of contingency and problems, you're never in one place. You're always adjusting. That's not the question. The question to me is what process should we use? And to me, the problem is we've abandoned the process that works for an uncertain alternative where we're shouting at each other and we're, where the will to power is more important than the ability to persuade or the, or the science and art of persuasion based on facts, logic, and evidence. Thank you so much, Mark. And thank you so much, Victor. And speak to you soon. Thank I you, mean- Nick, for, for do- doing this. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Wittstock, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UWPoliticalEconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.